Praise the Lord. Today, today is the last Friday before Christmas, December 25, the day when Christians celebrate the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, actually his birth. It's not that that date is necessarily so important. I mean, the church did not actually call December 25 the birth of Christ until the year 336 AD, after his death. But rather, what is important is that Jesus came, that Jesus was born as a baby. Now many today emphasize Christmas as simply the message of peace and hope and joy. But for some, Christmas doesn't bring memories of peace, but of pain. For some, hope seems to have dried up like a wadi in the desert. Joy is temporary, put on like decorations on a fake tree. Friends, the real message of Christmas is Christ. He is what Christ Mass, Christmas, is all about. Therefore, Christmas is for us a wonderful time to consider who Christ is and what he did in entering creation to save sinners. Christmas is a great time for Christians to consider how to imitate that humility and offer ourselves to God and to others in love. Now, if, if you have not believed in Christ, or maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you rarely step into a church except for around Christmas or Easter, uh, we're, one, we're so glad you're here. Uh, you're most welcome, uh, not only at these times, but any time. The church is a great place to learn who Christ is and what Christmas is all about. Listen carefully then, because the real message of Christmas is all about the peace, the joy, the hope that Christ brings. And Christian brother and sister, don't, don't let the seasonal distractions distract you from the true hero of Christmas. Be encouraged as you remember your king and what he's done to bring you peace with God. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in Judah in the 8th century before Christ, and his message of hope that comes in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, it comes in the middle of one of Israel's darkest times, as those 10 tribes of the northern kingdom were taken away into exile in Assyria. From the chapters surrounding our passage in chapter 9, we learned about their situation. It was a situation of great anguish, of distress. In many ways, we can identify also, though for sure ours is not as rough as theirs would have been, constant threats of war, corruption at every level, political, economic, religious, fear, oppression, slavery, 
Wars and rumors of wars abound around us even today. At that time, and even now, people were seeking guidance. They were lost in deep darkness. I mean, what about you? Do you, do you feel anguish? Do you feel trapped in darkness and gloom today? Maybe, maybe these fears... Or maybe you fear that these things will come to you. Maybe you don't fear or feel these things at all, but you know that they could be around the corner in your life. Friends, wherever you are, may this message be a word of hope to you, a word of hope and peace and joy. That's the main point of this passage uh, as we look at it, that in the midst of darkness, Christ was born bringing hope to all who trust in him. In the midst of darkness, Christ was born bringing hope to all who trust in him. And we'll look at three things, verses one to three, God's message of hope, verses four and five, the reasons for hope, and third, the person of hope, or God's son who brings hope. So let's first consider God's message of hope. And in that, we see a great light and increasing joy. Uh, Isaiah's message of hope may have sounded strange to his first listeners. I mean, understand how deep that darkness was that they were in. You know, if, if we think even in our own situation in our days, you know, Dash brought some of the most outrageous evils that we've seen in this century. Many living in those days described that, especially down in in Mosul area, like living in the dark ages. Street-level justice allowed for racial hatred, sexual slavery, the murder of of any who opposed their, their religious views, distress, darkness, hopelessness marked those who lived through those dash-controlled areas. By comparison, the Assyrian Empire was one of the most cruel kingdoms that ever lived or ever ruled. Their fierceness was intended to invoke fear, to maximize submission of those they oppressed and to minimize any revolt against them. As bad as the Babylonians or the Persians were at that time, they were considered kind in comparison to the Assyrians. Now, into such darkness, that's where Isaiah speaks the message of hope in the present tense. And it's in this sense that he's saying it's as good as done. And yet God's promised hope would not come for another 700 years. But for these exiles, they now had something to hold on to, to look forward to, though it wouldn't happen in their lifetime. Friends, hope like that is born out of faith. Hebrews 
chapter one uh, or chapter eleven one says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. So, friends, what are you, what are you holding on to? What are, what are you looking forward to in the midst of unknowns, in the times of confusion, or, or perhaps in your days of darkness and gloom? What are you holding on to? Well, I would encourage you to believe the one who has created the universe. Trust in him who makes promises and his promises are sure. Have faith like Abraham who believed God that nations would come from his descendants even when he was old and had no children. You see, having only the one child of promise, he didn't get to see that with his own eyes, did he? Yet Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. For these exiles who believed God's message through Isaiah, they know, they know that God will, will break their oppression. That God will send a deliverer. That there will be a kingdom of justice and one to rule in righteousness. They know that this darkness will be overcome by light. These faith-filled exiles could rejoice that light was dawning, even if they could not feel the full warmth of that sun's rising. Their day of rejoicing was near enough to hold on to it. Instead of death and decreasing, the nation will be enlarged. Instead of poverty, Israel's exiles hope for an abundance in the harvest. Instead of being the spoils of war for others, they, it says, will divide the plunder themselves. That's how hope works. Like the Israelites freed from slavery along with Moses... They, they were rejoicing with songs of deliverance in the wilderness long before they went into the promised land. It's like my, my mother's British friend who survived World War II. She told me the day that she rejoiced when it was announced that Nazi Germany had been defeated. Eight months of blanket bombing across several cities had destroyed many cities and killed over 40,000 people. But the announcement of victory caused the whole nation to erupt in shouts of celebration and even tears of joy. Even though it would be many years before the rubble was cleared and new buildings raised. Well, friends, looking around at the world, whether here in Kurdistan or in the greater region or Europe or the Far East or even the Americas, 
there is this sense of gloom and a, a, a growing and deep darkness that seems to hang over people. The powerful position themselves for more power. The, the wealthy want for more wealth. The morality is facing its own mortality. Those who have such power would make slaves of us all if they could. And in the midst of such darkness, how then are we to respond? Friends, this is the point of the message of hope. When we, when, when we hear and we trust in his word, we can rejoice in hope and not despair in the darkness. We can look up to Him, and we can believe His message of hope. Verse 1 to 3 speaks of God's message of hope, but for what reason can people respond in hope with such great rejoicing? Well, let's consider that now in the second point reasons for hope. And we'll see two things, freedom and peace. Actually, verses 4 and 5 and 6 in in the ESV, verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with that word for. They all begin with that little word for. The first reason for hope in verse 4 is freedom. God has broken their yoke of oppression by bringing freedom. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. A yoke. Yoke is that wooden bar that's put across the cattle so they can pull a cart or a plow or something like that. In those days, even kings, conquering kings, would brag about the yoke that they would put on their captives. But Isaiah says here that one mightier than the great and terrible Assyrian king, Sennacherib, would shatter the burdens that he had placed on Israel. And that one would break the rod of Sennacherib's oppression into pieces. God's announcement of freedom through Isaiah was a deliverance, yes, from physical oppressors, from heavy burdens and from war. And and that is certainly a deliverance that is desired even today In fact, many today think, if I can just escape the oppression of this government, or if I can just get out from under the burden of debt, if I can just leave the war of an abusive spouse or family, then everything will be fine. Then I can truly live. Then I can truly have joy and happiness. And oh, friends... If it were only so easy to have true joy and happiness, 
You see, there is a greater oppression that burdens the heart. A greater war than any man can or woman can bring against another. It is the oppression of our accuser, Satan, who stands ready to accuse us at every moment. It is the burden of sin that weighs heavy on our hearts. The war which these wage against the soul of mankind. Friends, you don't have to look too deeply into your own soul to see the effect of that war and to know that there's no victory by your own hand. You cannot win those battles, not on your own. And that's why we're so desperate for good news. Desperate for news of peace. And that's the second reason for hope in verse 5. It's peace. God will end war and bring peace. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All those instruments of war will become like fuel for the fire. The bows, the arrows, the swords, the shields, the shoes, and even the clothing. All will be burned up. Every trace of war to vanish in fire. So complete will be God's victory. Uh, Now, I'm not sure if what Isaiah is saying here is the same thing that Ezekiel is pointing to in Ezekiel 39. But there in Ezekiel 39, God says that Israel would not have to gather wood for seven years. Why? Because he says they will be burning the instruments of war to warm their homes and cook their food for seven years. It's, it's actually kind of hard to imagine such peace like that. You know, we, we, here we are. We, we live in the same land that Isaiah is prophesying about. The capital of the Assyrian Empire was right here in Iraq. Right where the little Zab River comes into the Tigris River, that's, that's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And for thousands of years, this land has known no peace. It's been constantly oppressed by war. But friends, there will be a day when all wars will cease And in that day, all our struggles with sin and those who commit sin will be over. How can sin, oppression, and war be finished completely? How can God bring freedom and peace? Well, that's the third reason for hope, which we find in verse 6. There is a person who brings 
hope. And that leads us to our third point. God's Son who brings hope in verses 6 and 7. Now, now we would expect that a, a person who ends wars, who brings deliverance and, and peace like this, we would expect a, a mighty warrior or a resistance fighter like Che Guevara or, or some polished politician. But Isaiah's good news of hope comes in a much smaller size. It's a baby. As you see there in verse 6, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I'm for sure a baby's birth brings great joy. But how can a baby bring hope out of such hopelessness? Well, it's because this is no ordinary baby, is he? He's, he is the king who God had promised to David back in 2 Samuel 7, who would reign on King David's throne with justice and righteousness from that time of his coming and forevermore. He was to come as a baby, but no ordinary baby. And not in an ordinary way, even. If you just flip back to chapter 7 in Isaiah, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is what the Christmas story reminds us. What Luke chapter 1, 31 to 35 proclaims. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, prophetically, Isaiah confirms Jesus' divine nature through this child's unusually great name. In fact, he mentions four different ways that he is named that describe this child, names which would be unusual for any human being. Let's consider each one. First, there is the wonderful counselor. Now, some people are called counselors, and, and even their counsels may be wonderful. But Isaiah seems to mean something more than simply a wise counselor. 
here. In fact, in chapter 28-29 of Isaiah, it says that God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. God is. His thoughts are pure and right and true. He sees the end of the matter from the beginning. He is not swayed by deception or manipulated by man's tricks. Friend, have you been confused in certain situations what to say or or how to act? Friends, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's lived perfectly as a man, giving us an example in both living and loving. His word provides all the counsel, the great counsel you need for every situation. A counselor is also a lawyer, a lawyer who represents someone in court. Now, if you if you must go to court for some reason, you want a wonderful counselor to represent you before the judge. Well, friends, one day we will all stand before the righteous judge, before God, our creator. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor. In that day, Jesus will be our defense before the throne of of judgment for comfort for defense Jesus is our wonderful counselor the second name mighty God Isaiah gives us this this phrase that wherever else it's used in scripture it refers to the God who created the universe And Isaiah uses it here. Well, the New Testament reveals that Jesus is this same mighty God. He is fully God and fully man. John 1 describes Jesus as the word of God who was with God in the beginning, who is God, and he is the word of God that God spoke all things that were created into existence. And then in verse 14, John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2.9 confirms also Jesus's divine nature. I could I could go on and on, but Colossians 2.9, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the mighty God who took on flesh. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's nothing that Jesus cannot do. No matter that's too big that he cannot handle. No problem too confusing that he can't sort it out. Jesus 
is in every way the mighty God. The third name, Everlasting Father. Now, sometimes rulers are called the Father. Uh, For instance, Sheikh Zayed uh, brought the United Arab Emirates into the modern era. Uh, Under his leadership, the UAE became a country on December 2nd, 1971, and he is called the Father of the Nation. Sheikh Zayed died on November 2, 2004. A king can be called the father of his nation, but no king, no king could ever claim to be the everlasting father. Not except Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal. He is has always existed and will always exist. He and the Father are of one essence. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now Jesus makes, uh, makes possible for us a, a relationship with God as our Father. So I want, to, I want to touch on that a moment because he calls himself Father. Through faith in Jesus, you see, we may be adopted by God into his family. And we just talked about John 1 for a moment, but in John 1, 12, it says, But to all who received him, Jesus, this word that became flesh, to all who received him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God is a father, but he's a very, very different father than perhaps the father that you grew up with or that you were born from. I mean, your father may have tried the best he could to love you and to lead you well. He may have been kind and encouraging, Or he may have been abusive and uncaring. He may have even abandoned you. God, however, he brings his adopted ones close to his heart. That's who God is as father. Oh, friends, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He does not change like a shifting shadow. He brings good gifts to those who are his children. And he, in fact, as a father, sets boundary lines in pleasant places for us. And when we cross over those boundary lines, he disciplines us as a father should, a loving father Friends, Jesus is the eternal king who can be called everlasting father. And the fourth, the fourth one, fourth name is the prince of peace. Friends, Jesus is the prince of peace. Under his rule is a peace that surpasses all understanding. His peace is 
will increase. His peace will never end. And such peace comes only through Jesus Christ. John 14, 27. He says it this way. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Oh friends, that's the peace that Jesus gives. And as His name is no ordinary name, so His kingdom is no ordinary kingdom. It is an ever-increasing kingdom with an ever-increasing peace. It is a kingdom that is established and upheld with justice and righteousness. It is an eternal kingdom that will not end. And how does that peace work out in us? It works as He works in us. We can experience such peace in a local church like this as we are being transformed in His image. And as we each humbly give ourselves to Him and seek Him for peace and reconciliation in our relationships, that peace increases. You know, the final line in Isaiah passage, uh, verse nine, the end of verse 9, uh, was it 7? How does this all, how does this all happen? Is it, because, is, is, it, is it all our work? Well, no. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, what God says He will do. And I have to ask, friends, are you, is this the, do you long for the kind of peace that Jesus brings? Well, you, you cannot know peace unless you know and believe in the true Prince of Peace. And as bad as the, the gloom and darkness that Israel was facing, it's, it's nothing compared to the gloom and darkness of the day of God's righteous judgment. Now the Bible says that we deserve God's justice, that, that, he, that it is an eternal conscience punishment in hell because of our sins against His eternal being. There's, there's no way out. There's no workaround. There's no influence that you can command because we are weak. We are guilty. We are full of shame. We're stumbling around in darkness with no peace, no hope, no joy. But Christmas, Christmas reminds us that we can have peace and hope and joy through God's hero. Now, the hero of Christmas is not Santa Claus. It is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the hero of Christmas because he makes peace with God possible. Christmas is about God entering into creation humbly as a baby in the person of Jesus Christ. At his birth, the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Christmas is about the birth of Christ and the hope that comes with his life, death, and resurrection. Christmas is the response of joy to the light and life that Christ brings. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He bears the yoke of God's judgment. He breaks the burden of death's oppression. And he ends the war that our sin started. Only Jesus could make such peace possible. Only Jesus could be that perfect sacrifice for sin that was needed. Oh friend, do you long for such peace? To have hope for freedom that's true. To know real joy that's not temporary, but will last eternally. Do you hope for that? Well, you can know it. You can receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice today. You need only to repent. That is to turn from your sin and believe that his death and resurrection will make you right with God. Then, as Romans 5.1 announces, which we read earlier in the service, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the message of Christmas is a message about Christ. In the midst of our darkness, Christ was born as a baby, bringing hope to all who trust in him. And through faith in him, we can now have peace and hope and joy. Let's pray. Father, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the greatest gift that the world could ever know or has ever known. And yet so many leave this gift unopened and overlooked. Oh Lord, this Christmas, turn all our thoughts and attention to Him, to the true reason for the season. And may those who have not surrendered to His kingship Lord, may they bow their knees in submission to him today. For he truly is wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, the prince of peace. Oh, Lord, be glorified through Christ and in your church, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.